there are few industries, a few, like Airbnb, Uber, Facebook, <laughs> like a few where there's such a big market and it's going to be winner takes most. And so there's going to be a massive war to get to that number one position. And so if you can get there, you are going to be completely locked in and that is phenomenal. Welcome back to Product Market Fit, a show for early stage founders and operators who are looking to level up their startup growth. My name is Moshe Polterak, and my guest today is Howard Bornstein, president of CharterUp. The company is revolutionizing group transportation and was recently named the number two fastest growing private company in the US by Inc. Magazine. Interestingly, Howard was an early investor in CharterUp and has a background in venture at Bain Capital, among others. Howard shares his unique perspective as an investor turned operator, including his three-question framework for evaluating startups, his rule of 30, and the importance of identifying and focusing on an ICP or ideal customer profile. Howard's definition of product market fit will shock you and stick around to the end as he shares practical tips on fundraising, including the most common mistake he sees in decks. But first, a message from our sponsor. The Product Market Fit podcast is brought to you by growth.co. That's growth without the O.co. Growth offers fractional CMOs paired with best-in-class digital marketing execution to support early-stage startup success. With a focus on seed and Series A companies, Growth has helped a number of SaaS, digital health, and e-commerce startups build their go-to-market function and scale up. To learn more and book a free consultation, go to growth.co. That's G-R-W-T-H dot C-O. Without further ado, here's Howard Bornstein, president of CharterUp. Hello, Howard. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being here. Hi, Moshe. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. So before we get into business, we're both recording here on October 16th, a week after the devastating tragedy that's happened in Israel. And obviously, a lot has transpired since then. If you want to share any thoughts about what's happening. Yeah, Moshe, thank you. This is an incredible tragedy. It's been a very difficult eight days for me, for so many, for friends and colleagues who've directly lost people or indirectly lost people. It's just been tremendously difficult. And I just think it's so important to recognize that we really are all leaders in our own regards and that being willing and, and finding it as part of our duty to stand up and be vocal and give voice and take a stand, that the actions from last Saturday were unacceptable and they were not okay. I'm not okay. And it is certainly a component of it, that I'm Jewish, that two of my grandparents, my late grandparents were Holocaust survivors, and they both lost their first spouses and collectively lost four of their five first children in the Holocaust. And so that brings back a tremendously difficult history, but it's not just because of that, regardless of the, the faith being targeted or the country being targeted, the acts of last Saturday are just not okay. They're not okay to have in this world no matter anyone trying to justify, there is no, no justification. And I, I just think it's important for people to pause and to be able to recognize that and say it out loud and appreciate that silence always benefits the aggressor or the tormentor, never the victim, never the tormented. And it's just not okay. And we need to be able to come together and say that and talk about it with friends, with colleagues, with other people. And it's really hard. And I, I recognize a very difficult 
situation in general, but nothing about the situation or the history or anything makes the acts of last Saturday okay. And my prayers go out to everyone and especially those directly affected. So, yeah, thank you for sharing that. I hope that by the time this episode airs, that we as a world, as a global civilization, are in a better place than we are today. And echoing your points about speaking up, folks on the left, folks on the right, Jews, Muslims, Christians, atheists, doesn't matter what country you're from, we can all agree that evil is evil and we can all come together and we can have our differences. We can debate politics and we can debate philosophy. However, the basic morality of what makes us human, we can all agree on. And I think that is beautiful that we're seeing a lot of that and hope to see more of that coming together and creating bridges and creating understanding between people. Thank you for sharing that. Likewise, Moshe. So let's jump into the topic at hand. Charter Up has been making waves in the news recently and some really fantastic successes and milestones. Why don't you start with telling us what is Charter Up and who do you serve? Sure. Charter Up is the number one charter service provider for Fortune 500 companies, including Google, Amazon, Microsoft, Apple. We were founded in 2018 and we've experienced very rapid growth since our founding. And just so I understand, it is a marketplace, so companies can come looking for charter bus services or, or any sort of group transportation services, I'm assuming. And then you also have on the supply side, you don't own your own vans, right? You have uh, a marketplace for drivers or companies that offer that, correct? Exactly. Our primary service, our primary business is our marketplace. And so if you are looking for large group transportation, basically, if you're looking for anything larger than you can find on Uber or Lyft, ChargerUp is the place to go. Soon to be launching uh, Sprinter vans, as well as minibuses and charter buses, which have been the core of our offering since founding. If you need to transport groups of eight to 500 or thousands, we can do it for you. And we're going to make it easier than you ever thought possible. If you're like most individuals, you probably never chartered a bus in your life. Maybe you chartered something for your wedding. And it's hard to imagine how complicated chartering buses are and executing on charter bus movements. And we make it simple. We make it easy. We make it hassle-free. And I think that's why we've grown so quickly, quite frankly. I know we're going to get into that in more detail. Yeah, we're definitely going to talk about the growth. But just for a frame of reference, if you can give us a sense of where you're at stage-wise, whatever you're comfortable sharing, revenue funding, customers, just so we understand where you're at. Yeah, sure thing. So we were originally bootstrapped. Our first four years, fully bootstrapped. We raised our first round of capital just over a year ago. That was about $60 million. And that was from Austin-based Tritium Partners. That was our Series A. And our, our press release then was that we were over $150 million in run rate. We don't openly share our revenue, but that was a year ago. And we've continued our rapid growth since then. Fantastic. And your background, interestingly, you're not one of the founders of the company. You were an early investor and advisor to the CEO, and you joined after a couple of years in that role, you joined the company as president. So I have to ask you, what was so special about this company from all of your portfolio companies that you've been uh, investing in, involved in, that you decided to make the plunge and take this one on full-time? It was a tough decision. I think the probably two big categories. I think one of those big categories was 
so many things about CharterUp fit my personal investment framework, my philosophy around what lays the foundation for the possibility of building a great company. And so that was a really big one. The second is what drives me. And so what drives me, I, and this might sound a little cheesy, but I love technology. I love growing things and I love helping people. And Armir, the founder, and I had just built an incredibly strong relationship over those first three years of working together as an advisor that when he asked and he said, hey, look, like things are really clicking and the growth is really taking off and we could really use some help in managing and accelerating that growth. I was just also very excited to, to get to work directly with Thermir and get to build something that I knew that I still know has tremendous opportunity both to help people and improve, improve access to a difficult service for people. And then, of course, to build something big as well. Fantastic. And I, I definitely want to come back to some of those perspectives that you have as an investor. We'll circle back on that. Speaking of the early stages and finding that moment where growth started really taking off, I'd love to ask you for your definition of product market fit, something that we've been exploring since the beginning of the show, and we've heard a few different versions of it. How do you define product market fit? And was there a moment in the history of CharterUp that you or you together with our mirror said, yes, we have it. And now it's time to pour fuel on the fire. Definitely. So I'll kick off with an unpopular distinction. But for me, product market fit is around 100 million or so in revenue. That's where you actually start to hit product market fit. I, I think the word product market fit that I've become accustomed or adopted to using as well is really what I would call early signs of product market fit, right? For me, it's early signs of product market fit. And, and that's what's so exciting. I think for early stage entrepreneurs, which I've seen and gone through myself personally, that early sign of product market fit is so exciting, right? That's invigorating. That's where like, as an entrepreneur, like you light up, you're like, wait a second, <laughs> like it's clicking, it's clicking. I'm talking about it in the way that the customer understands it and they love it and they want it. And they want to tell their friends about it, right? And so one of my, and, and this will overlap, you'll sort of see from an investment philosophy, I have three key questions for an early stage entrepreneur, for an early stage opportunity, which is number one, what is the problem? What's the pain point you're trying to solve? And you can say, oh, that's so simple. Of course you can answer that. It's amazing how many people can't pinpoint the, the answer to that question. Right. They focus on the product and not the problem. Really well put. They focus on the product, not the problem. They have a vision of what they want to see, but it doesn't focus on the pain point, right? And so that I think is so critical. The second one is what do your prospective customers say about that pain point? And this is one where in my first entrepreneurial journey, I totally missed this one. I totally skipped this step. And understanding what potential customers say about it is really that paramount sort of point. Is the pain point painful and ubiquitous is really what I'm testing to see. Can I give you a score on how painful is it for people and how much do different customers have the exact same pain point versus how much is it? Oh, it's a little bit different for me. It's a little bit different for me. Oh, it's a lot different for me. I actually don't feel that pain point at all. That's the 
second question. And then the third question is, what do your prospective customers say about your solution? And here, I think that's the place where once you get to the third question, right, and you start seeing, wait a second, there's a clear pain point. Everybody who's in this universe has this pain point and it's painful and they get excited about the solution you're proposing. That is that first glimmer, I'll call it, of like early signs of product market fit. Then you start offering the service and you start seeing customers use it and you talk to them and you understand like what went well, what could have gone better. When you start getting to a place of it just went well, it just went well. Like, I don't know what to tell you. Like, it just went well. And you're like, okay, well, who are the top two or three friends you can think of who would most want to use this service? And would you be okay introducing me to them? When you start seeing that and people are like, oh yeah, I should introduce you to Jesse. I should introduce you to Jamie. I should introduce you to John. I mean, that to me is where you really start seeing it. Absolutely. It's really the only milestone that matters for early stage startups. You need to get to product market fit. That's it. Nothing else matters. Not fundraising, not hiring, not your fancy website or your LLC or anything else. If you don't get to product market fit, you will fail, of course. If you do get to product market fit, then you not necessarily is success guaranteed, but now you have something that the market wants. You have a chance to then go execute and scale that up. I think that your definition is definitely different. It sets a very high bar, but I like the concrete nature of it that you're putting a line in the sand and saying that you need to have metrics that clearly show that this is being adopted, that this is a solution that the market wants to a problem that's large enough to create a business that, that can scale. So that $100 million line in the sand is much higher than I would have thought, but I see your point there. Well, and, and we can look at lots of examples and debate it, right? If you think of like Facebook and like, when was there a view that like Facebook was here to stay, right? Maybe some people thought at 5 million or 10 million users, oh, Facebook is here to stay, right? There is product market fit, but like, I can't even remember in the moment, like what was it that was the predecessor of Facebook? And like, they were way bigger than 10 million users. <laughs> they are not. Yeah. Friendster and then MySpace. <laughs> well, there's the other point that product market fit is not a single moment that you kind of have to get it over and over again in each market segment that you enter with each product that you release and, and each. And so it's kind of a, a stepwise challenge. So is there anything that you guys did unique that stands out to you now, looking back at those early stages as you were kind of, you know, fumbling around in the dark, trying to find product market fit, anything that comes to mind there? Oh, I mean, look, the baseline is a really favorable baseline, right? And this is the rule of 30, which you alluded to, but the baseline is so favorable in that we are operating in an industry that doesn't have much technology. We're operating in an industry that doesn't have a national player. There is no national player. In our industry. We're operating in an industry where there's a lot of stuff that goes wrong. There's a lot of stuff that goes wrong. And so if you can make it easier, if you can give the individuals who are booking buses something that makes that meaningfully easier, it's just so easy to delight people. And so that was the initial premise, really. And I think the gap between the market and what we were able to deliver from even a, a first effort perspective was so big that no one before had ever 
thought of having a kayak-like experience or an Airbnb-like experience to book their large group transportation. If you would have suggested that, you would have gotten weird looks from people who booked before. He's like, no, no, I know that's not even possible because when I go to book transportation, I need to spend 40 minutes on the phone trying to get a quote. And I might not even succeed in getting a quote. I might have to do that three or four times with different providers before anyone gives me a quote. How could you possibly enable a kayak-like experience for my charter service? There's that wow factor out of the gate, right? And so I do think that really helped us in that we were fortunate by being in an industry where the bar to deliver wow was sufficiently easy enough for us to deliver wow out of the gate. Very cool. And did you start right out of the gate? Were you targeting the corporate buyer as the ICP where you mentioned about weddings, right? People book group transport for personal reasons as well. How did you find the ICP that you're focused on today? In, in terms of finding the ICP, so to speak, th there is a little, call it stumbling and fumbling around, right? We had a general customer profile, but in terms of ideal customer profile, we would have said it's businesses. We would not have been able to say it's construction facilities or it's sports teams or it's universities or it's, you know, shuttles for Amazon or FedEx or whatever. We would not have been able to tell you out of the gate that these are our ICPs, so to speak. But we would have said, hey, any company, right? Any company that needs to book buses for their employees, we can make that demonstrably easier and a demonstrably better experience. So that's where we started from. And again, I think this, this goes back to it is having a place where the pain point was ubiquitous made a huge difference, right? If you were Amazon or you were Google, you had the same pain point. But if you were a sports team, you had the same pain point. If you were a furniture manufacturer, you had the same pain point. If you were the bride or the groom, you had the same pain point. If you were the church, you had the same pain point. That was so ubiquitous, right? It was so ubiquitous that it provided a tremendous amount of room to learn and grow even prior to needing to really hone in the ICP so much. Again, like we go back to those questions, it's easy. It's like, well, those questions seem so simple. Like, is there really that much stuff that falls out of those questions? I'll give you an example. I think for people who are at that phase of struggling, like, well, I've got clarity on the pain point, but I can't tell you what my prospective customers say about the pain point. It's like, well, why not? Why can't you tell me what your prospective customers say? Is it that you're not clear on who your prospective customers are? Is it that it's actually really difficult to reach those prospective customers? And so you haven't been able to have 10 or 30 conversations with them to really understand how ubiquitous the pain point is. Or is it that it's really complicated and you've got one customer who's the user, but they're not the buyer? And the buyers, not the user. Like, there's lots of potential complexity that falls out of that simple question. And so, again, we benefited from the fact that no matter who we spoke to, no matter who, if you needed to book bus transportation, you, whether you'd booked it before or not, you had the same problem. And that was super powerful for us, for sure. 
sorry for going on a tangent. One of my favorite stories, we had this opportunity. It was a relatively urgent client need. It was relatively high profile and they needed like mission impossible on a dime, basically. And so there the opportunity was like, our product could have been horrible and we wouldn't have failed because they knew that what they were asking for was next to impossible for anybody to deliver. So <laughs> in some regards, like you want to stay away from that client because it's so hard to nail what's being asked. At the same time, one of our key items has really been very growth focused, growth mindset oriented. We're like, look, we can do this. We can set the expectation, but we are certain we can find a way to execute and make this happen. And we did. And it was really important. So we were on site and it turned out there was someone else on site and they were going through chaos on their own. They had not come to us and they saw the way we were operating and they went to our customer and the customer said, oh, like, let me give you these guys' phone number. And so they connected us with one of the other entities who's also trying to do something. And they switched to us. They came to us. And then it happened again in the same basically like 48 hours, so to speak, is basically we got this customer referral leading to a customer referral leading to a customer referral. And for me, that's a moment, you know, call it history, so to speak, that I look back on and say, wow, okay, that is proof that you know, we've got product market fit. And again, I think even in my mind, I misused my own definition because I don't think we were a hundred million in revenue at that point in time, but man, was that a strong signal of product market fit? So I think those are powerful stories when you see your customers referring you to other people with the same struggle. Great story. And I think that my takeaway from your definition is around signals of product market fit, as opposed to quote unquote, having product market fit, right? You alluded earlier to your rule of 30, which I think is an interesting kind of, I don't know if it's an investment thesis or just a way to look at markets. And I'd love for you to dive into that a little bit further about what makes for an interesting market from your perspective as an investor even, or as a founder, when you look at an industry, what tells you that this is ripe for disruption now? Great question. The rule of 30 is something I coined personally back when I was at Bain Capital Ventures many years ago and really focused on SaaS investing, software investing. And for me, the rule of 30 is simple. If there's an industry that has not really been improved upon in 30 years, then there's a very good chance that technology can bring a lot of growth to that market and that technology provider can build a very exciting company. And so when I led the investment in Flywire, most people probably don't know about Flywire. They're a payments processing company. They make it easy for students, international students to pay their tuition bills. They also make it easy for, I think they're now expanded into medical tourism and international real estate, other areas where there's high volumes of you know, cross-border currency exchange from a retail customer. Super nebulous, right? I'd never thought about that in my life previously. I didn't have a personal view on it, but when you look around, there's been no innovation. There was no innovation in 30 or 40 years in that space. And the charter industry really has had a lot of similarities. If you look back to before Charter Up, I mean, 
charter buses have been around for a long time, right? A long time. People have been taking buses since I, I don't know how long. They've been chartering them for since I don't know how long. Has there ever been, or what's the last technological innovation you can think of in the charter space? Sure. Yeah, you can't. You're like, I, I got no idea. This is kind of what Uber did, right? Uber did this. Uber, Lyft, others did this with taxis. Like taxis, people wanting someone else to give them a ride from one place to another, nothing was new about that. Nothing was new about that. But there have been no innovation in taxis in decades. And then you have people come along saying, hey, wait a second, we can bring technology to this and completely transform the way this is done. We can make it faster, we can make it cheaper, we can make it easier, we can make it so you can track yourself, so you can have invoicing, so you can do all these things that you never knew you wanted because they were never even a remote possibility. And so we've been able to do that in a really exciting way, but I got a little off track. <laughs> but the rule of 30 is that, right? If you look around, you're like, hey, there hasn't been innovation for 30 years, I'll bet if you can come up with something that meets the three questions right? Pain point, what does the customer say? And what do they say about your solution? If you have positive signals to those three things, and there has not been innovation in at least 30 years, you've got a good shot of building something big. How do you balance that with the idea that you want to pick at least a starting market that's almost impossibly small? Like Amazon Jeff Bezos had the vision for the everything store, but he started with books and he specifically started with selling books online in the US, right? So like we know the, the history from there of what Amazon has become and continues to uh, evolve into. When a founder is looking at an industry that looks massive and looks ripe for disruption, there's conventional wisdom that says, if it's so obvious then the, you know, the rational markets would have taken care of it. So you can't go after that big market. You have to slice off a tiny piece. How do you balance that with that rule of 30? And just generally, what advice do you have for founders considering that? So first, I once found $200 on the ground. I, another time I found a $100 bill on the ground. So I don't subscribe to the idea that if it was there, someone else would have already picked it up because <laughs> I've twice found at least $100 on the ground that if I thought that was the case, I mean, I wouldn't be an entrepreneur either. But so one, I rebuff that myth, that idea of like efficient markets are not efficient. We see that all the time. So that's number one. Number two, you have to start somewhere and strength comes from focus. You can't have a weak foundation. And so the goal is to develop a strong foundation as quickly as possible, as quickly as possible. The vast majority of times, the easiest way to do that is by picking something and focusing on it. This is your ICP question, right? Your ICP question is exactly that. Like, what's your ideal customer profile? It is much better to have 10 customers using your product in the exact same way from the exact same industry than to have 10 customers using your product in 10 different ways from 10 different industries. It's like, well, why is that? Shouldn't that be equal? I'm like, that is not equal at all. If it's the same industry, you now have a base of power and you have reference customers who can tell their friends and who can accelerate your sales cycle and so much more, so much more. That, if you think of the Amazon story, right? That's the Amazon story. Let's go develop a base of power somewhere. Now, and lots of people talk about, oh, but this is a horizontal market. It's not a vertical market. I'm like that to me 
is a bit of a cop-out to say, oh, but this is a horizontal market. At the end of the day, so many markets are horizontal markets, but if you can't win somewhere, you can't win anywhere. No one starts out by winning everywhere. Everyone has to start by winning somewhere. And so if your objective is to build a big company that makes a big difference, and ideally for most entrepreneurs, you're raising money, you want to retain equity, right? You don't want to dilute yourself prematurely. Well, you get a tremendous amount of efficiency and scale on sales, on marketing, on technology, on operations, on everything, if you can focus, right? If Amazon needed to build everything for books and everything for, I'm going to say automobiles at the same time, that would have been tremendously harder than just doing books. If this had books and six other categories, even more harder, it's exponentially harder as you do that. And so I've seen this a lot. It's very common. I, I, I had conversations with one company where their two primary segments, their two primary ICPs were growing really, really quickly. And they had eight other segments. And they had a marketing team that was probably four or five times what I would normally see as the size of a marketing team for a company of that stage. And I asked, I was like, well, these two segments seem so much higher velocity, higher close rates, more leads, all this stuff. Why not focus all your sales and marketing effort at these higher converting categories? Like they, they bring in money faster and, and, and they don't distract your product team from building you know, features for six additional product categories. Do you want to guess what the answer I got was? Well, I think sometimes founders see it as turning away revenue and they're afraid to say no. If a customer wants to give me their money, I'll take it. And they don't look at the cost of then servicing that customer in terms of distracting the team, distracting the messaging, distracting the product roadmap, all that comes along with taking on a customer that's outside of your ICP. That's what I see the most often. Yeah. It, and it's so hard, right? And, yeah. and I think when you're talking about it theoretically, it's easy to say that. It's right. easy to say that. <laughs> when you're in the trenches, my goodness, that is really hard. It's so hard. In this particular case, I was the answer I got surprised me, right? Wasn't a, well, we don't want to turn away this revenue. It was, well, if we get to the end of a quarter and it looks like we're short, we're going to come up short on our objectives for the quarter, then we can just focus all of our attention at the end of the quarter into these two segments and we can make sure we hit our quarterly numbers, right? Like that, that you're like, wait a second, wait a second. <laughs> this is the answer. And I think to your point, Moshe, not everyone steps back and says, well, wait a second, how much further can I go? How much faster can I go if the road is a little bit narrower, right? If I narrow my focus and, and I can compound the velocity of delivering wow for one or two segments, could I also compound the velocity of my sales and marketing efficiency, of my payback time, of my LTV to CAC, of my references, right? Could I also compound that? And what I see is such a distinguishing factor, and this is a little, there's a nuance here, I, I don't want to lose, but this is such a distinguishing factor of what I see. Is this something that can be filled and converted and can you deliver wow with the standard product or do you need a different product to deliver wow? 
And if you need a different product or different product features that are going to now go onto your roadmap to deliver wow, then that is dilution. And it's interesting. It's dilution of focus. And if you connect the word dilution <laughs> to the classic fundraising dilution, it's true. It's dilution on both sides. Right. And I think it's so easily missed. And you see it all the time because it's, it's hard to stay focused. It's hard to hone that view. And the nuance, which I think is correct and people articulate, is that when you're really early stage, when you're pre-revenue, first couple customers, first few hundred thousand of revenue, certainly before a million dollars and before 10 customers, when you're at that stage, it's almost indistinguishable because at that point, the real focus I advocate for is to focus on what's the fastest path to 10 customers, what's the fastest path and easiest path to a million dollars in revenue. And so when you're at that really early stage, it's a slightly different question because you're still so early, you're still searching for those signs of product market fit. So you don't yet know if, hey, the retail customer that just came along and wants to buy, well, different, maybe they are much easier to sell to, much easier to deliver wow for, much easier to get referrals out of. You just don't know yet. And so that's where you've got to combine your hypotheses and your upfront conversations with the experience on the ground. And one of my, one of my colleagues loves to quote Mike Tyson, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face. Yeah. And I really think that's part of the reality here. So I don't want to sound like I'm coming from like a high horse or ivory tower on not appreciating how difficult this is when you're in the trenches. Sure. And of course, there are exceptions to every rule, but generally, absolutely on the mark there. Let me ask another naysayer question along these similar lines that you'll often hear, especially when it comes to marketplace businesses, which are notoriously difficult with chicken and egg and other compound complexity when you're dealing with multiple parties. CharterUp could have just been a software for charter bus companies. They didn't need to do the other side of the marketplace, theoretically, right? Why go for the full solution from the get-go? This is a question that often founders get asked. Whenever they're doing a B2C play, it's like, why don't you just do the B2B play, right? <laughs> because the B2B play is almost always easier, and it's a much straighter line to how do you get success. And a lot of investors, especially conservative investors, will say, you know, just do the B2B play, build the vertical SaaS. You know, the charter bus market is big enough to support a vertical SaaS player to help them with their back office needs, right? Why build the B2C side? There's probably some experience-based answer to that. And that would be the founder, you know, Armira's experience, right? He grew up in the bus industry. His uncles owned a limousine company and had charter buses. His first company was a charter bus company that brokered, I think, had vehicles and other things. And, and so he had a lot of experience. And so if you think of the, I'll call it two classic entrepreneurial models, in my opinion, there's one, which is the entrepreneur who has their own intimate personal experience and knowledge of an industry, whether that's because they're the customer and they've seen it as a customer or they're the person who provides the service and sees how broken it is or whatnot. And the right person there can have a completely unfair competitive advantage because of their intimate understanding, not just of the industry, its structure, conduct, performance, but like the psyche of the players in the industry on all sides of the table, right? Mm -hmm. 
And I think that modal, that Armir has that. Armir fits that modal. And so when you've got that, I think it can be so much easier to go through those three questions with tremendous amounts of confidence and tremendously easier ways to test, learn, and iterate and prove out, again, those early signs of product market fit, right? And so I think that is a really big factor here. I think the other modal, which is a person in search of a company to start, right? I am an entrepreneur. I want to go start something. I don't know what, but I'm going to go search for something to start. I think in those situations, it's so much harder to get to that level of depth of intimate industry understanding of all the dynamics, et cetera. That's a harder one where I think that intersection of understanding and confidence is almost by definition, it's going to be harder to get to that same line. It's absolutely true. If you have that intimate knowledge of the market, of the customer, you can get to conviction on the right way to do something and the right way to address a market. So the uh, perspective that you have as a investor turned operator, we've interviewed uh, several who've gone the other way, right? Founders or operators who've become investors. You've gone the, the opposite direction. What do you think each party misses most often when interacting? So what should investors be thinking about more as they're evaluating startups and as they're evaluating founders and vice versa? What are founders or operators missing or what misconceptions do they have about the fundraising process or about how VCs and investors are thinking? I think investors, especially those who were not operators previously, I think a lot of investors I've seen miss how little their perspective matters or determines the fate of the company. (laughs) As funny as that might sound, I think there's a lot of investors who think they know best, think they know what the customer wants, what the market wants, what the company should do. And I think nine times out of 10, it's the founder, it's the operator who's going to be closer to it and knows it. And, and quite frankly, if the investor thinks they know better, then it's probably not the right opportunity for the investor to invest in. Because I ideally want to make sure I'm investing in someone who they're going to know better. They're going to know what to do. I'm not the person. If I'm the person who knows what to do in the company that I'm invested in, then something is off there. And so for me, that's a big litmus test around it. I think the other thing, which I don't think a lot of investors necessarily miss, I think just the messiness of it. I think so many investors accept and appreciate and understand the messiness of it and you know jump in with full awareness. I think as an entrepreneur, the difference between an investor who's a supportive, I'll call it push, is such a phenomenal difference from an investor who's not. And so both that support and that push and help to focus, I think, are tremendous things for investors to bring to the table. There's a lot of investors who don't give as much weight to that. From the company side, Common mistakes, I think that founders make when fundraising is some of the classic ones, but I think capturing metrics early on and making sure you can tell your story with numbers is super powerful. I like to say you want to be telling the story as opposed to selling the story. And what I mean by that, if you're telling the story, you've got the history 
and you can show the history versus selling it is you're saying, hey, this is what's going to be the trajectory. As an investor, I always had a view of, I would call more of the same, which is I can make a view that things will continue on the same trajectory they're on. If there needs to be a view that things are going to continue on a different heightened trajectory, then I really need to understand like what is it that's going to fundamentally shift that trajectory. And so I think that ability to tell the story rather than sell the story is a huge opportunity for entrepreneurs. Really early stage, when you don't have a story to tell versus sell is like the next follow-up question, right? And I usually, this is the coming to America soup spoon, aha type of moment, which is, but is there a story you can still tell? Whether that is by customer interviews you've done, by demonstration of pain points in the industry, by demonstration of customer reactions to what your solution is, by demonstration of, hey, how easily will people take your phone call to talk about this? What are those things that you are able to tell that's like the most positive set of facts that you have to support your case, your hypothesis, which is this can be big, right? And so finding ways to support that I think is huge. The other one is not to put a valuation on the table, because that I think can turn off early stage investors very quickly. It's all about building supporters for your product and for your vision. It's about finding people who you can get excited, who want to give you money to go try and realize your dream, your vision. And then you get all of those together. And at some point, someone is going to put a value on it. And if you have much, much more demand than there is supply, so you've got many more dollars that want to invest than you need to take, then you're going to have created a market where you've got some ability to influence that price. And if you have not been able to get more demand than you're trying to sell, right? More dollars than you're looking to raise. If you can't get that demand function to exceed the supply function, then you really don't have much leverage to negotiate value, to negotiate price. And I think a lot of first-time entrepreneurs go into it thinking this is just about maximizing price. When I think really that, especially those first couple fundraises, it's all about building ambassadors and advocates and evangelists for what your vision is. And so you don't have leverage on price unless you can build so many more evangelists than you need capital. Absolutely. Practically speaking, though, what should a founder do when they're sending out their deck? There's always that the ask slide, right? And you have to specify how much you're raising. And every slide deck I've reviewed with a founder, they always ask you, should I put the valuation there? And there's always that tricky balance of like, everybody wants to know kind of where you're at. So what do you recommend? Hard no. Don't put the valuation. Don't fall into that trap. You are sending a deck around who knows where that deck's going to get forwarded, even if you have it in Docsend, who knows who's going to send it to whom and put their email in and get to view it. Doesn't matter. You do not want a valuation in there. The answer to that question is, I don't really know. I just want a fair valuation based on the market. And I expect that the market's going to let me know what's a reasonable. That's 100% in my view, 100% of the time, that's the way to do it. Now, 
book. If you're a multi-time entrepreneur and you've got a giant Rolodex and you've already made $5 billion for people and different story, you don't need my advice. I've not been there. I've not done that. So, but if it's a first-time entrepreneur or it's a early stage raise, you don't want to put a valuation out there because the chances are you're going to win in doing that. Either you're coming well below and the investors surprise and figure something must be wrong that you're indicating such a low value, or you come in too high and the investors turned off and says, yeah, I'd be really excited to invest, but expectations are too high, not worth my time. The chances you're going to nail it right where the investor is thinking is so low. You've already got the challenge of you need to speak to a hundred people to get to a yes. So don't make it harder on yourself than it needs to be. I agree there. One last question for you before we move on to the lightning round here. What trends or thesis do you or the company have about the changing transportation landscape in the next five to 10 years, let's say? Looking farther out, how do you see group transportation, mobility in general, how do you see those changing? Yeah, super interesting. I do think transportation is one of those segments that's really ripe for disruption. And I think it dovetails with energy, which is also ripe for disruption. And I think as we're seeing more electric vehicles get produced, larger electric vehicles get produced, I think both the demand for fully electric transportation is going to increase, as well as the cost for fully electric transportation is going to decrease. And so I think you're going to see some significant shifts there where that can actually bring down the cost of large group transportation. I think you'll really see a lot of market expansion in terms of more and more people are going to look for cleaner and cleaner ways to get places. And if the cost of that comes down, those methods are going to be more and more accessible. And so whether that is individual transportation and that you might choose to take a three and a half or four hour bus, that it might be a 90 minute plane ride, but you've got airport and security and lineups that make it more like a f- equivalent time frame. But the bus can be more comfortable, can be cheaper and more environmentally friendly and, and probably get you closer to your actual destination. I mean, those are going to be really interesting. And then for companies where companies might be you know, on the fence about providing group transportation to their employees to get to and from the office, as again, as that cost comes down and as the environmental impact improves, you could see more and more people who don't want to drive their internal combustion engine cars to the office. And it's a much, uh, much more environmentally friendly as well as sustainable overall value proposition. So I think that trend will be really interesting. I think the trend of autonomous vehicles, once that kicks in, that will be a huge unlock for the industry on a huge number of dimensions. My crystal ball is as good as yours, if not worse, on when is autonomous vehicles going to get to the place where people feel comfortable having 50 passenger buses on the road, completely autonomously driven, but I'm sure it will happen uh, at some point. And then maybe the third one, and maybe this is the Uber effect, but people are just getting more and more comfortable with like, hey, this is accessible, it's easy, we can do it. We don't need that big of a group before this starts making sense. I think that is another big trend that's going to continue to permeate. And 
We talked about announcements. We're about to launch our Sprinter van service or van service in a number of cities. And I think that's going to be very exciting, but also sort of showcase. was like, hey, this is just getting more and more accessible. And that's going to be really powerful for people. Fantastic. Well, I always appreciate predictions, whether it's a crystal ball or not. You're in the industry, so you have a unique perspective. So like getting that peek behind the curtain. We typically close out with a lightning round. I'll ask you a few questions. Tell me the first thing that comes to mind. Sound good? Sounds good. All right. What book, newsletter, and or podcast do you find yourself recommending most often? Turn the Ship Around. Tell me more. Okay. Turn the Ship Around is one of my top three or four favorite books from a business perspective. And it's all about, I'll call it high-performing teams and creating ownership and continuously training people up to take on more. If you haven't read it or heard of it, in my mind, it's a phenomenal story about a submarine captain who took the worst performing ship in the U.S. Navy and turned it into the top performing ship in the U.S. Navy in one year. And then it lasted, it stayed number one for the rest of his career and then for the 10 years following. And so that cultural change he, he embedded was such an unlock for the team, for productivity. And for me, there's so much language in that book. It's so rich that I want all of my teams, all of my managers, everybody at CharterUp to read that book and hopefully enjoy it even a smidgen as much as I did. (laughs) I appreciate the recommendation. I had not heard of it, so definitely we'll check it out. Thanks for that. What's one thing that you'd like to change about the startup world? I think there are so many founders, so many startups, and you see all this exciting news on TechCrunch, especially historically with all this value placed on fast-burning, rapid-growth companies and very limited value placed on efficiently finding product market fit or efficiently finding strong signals of product market fit. And I think what gets lost is that there are few industries, a few, like Airbnb, Uber, Facebook, like a few where there's such a big market and it's going to be winner takes most. And so there's going to be a massive war to get to that number one position. And so if you can get there, you are going to be completely locked in. And that is phenomenal. Those are places where fast burn makes a ton of sense. Like nail it while you're scaling it. Don't look back just burn at all costs. And, but that's a fraction. That's less than 1%. Every other industry I look at and I think, no, no, like be efficient, find product market fit without spending too much money and as most efficiently as possible. That's going to be what unlocks the companies. And that's also be what preserves the most value for founders. But ironically, it will also create the most value for investors. We can unpack that if you want. So many startups that don't take that view, this misconception that most startups should be in a burn and grow at all costs, when I actually think the opposite is true. Right. Very few industries have that winner takes all. You know, if there's network effects, then it happens. In certain cases, it happens. But for the most part, you're absolutely on the money there. The last one here, what is a core value or principle that you live by or try to live by? Do not do onto others as you would not wish them to do onto you. And sometimes that gets looks it's like, well, what? I haven't heard of that. And it's interesting, at least in my understanding, is the common conception of the golden rule 
is in the positive. Do unto others as you would wish them to do unto you. But my understanding is that from a, a historical perspective, a biblical perspective, it's actually, uh, call it a bit more of a, a protection uh, element. It's do not do unto others as you would not wish them to do unto you. And for me, I think that's super powerful. It's super important. Maybe unintentionally, we even come full circle to the start of the conversation. But for me, on a related note, John Stuart Mill, my favorite philosopher, or Mill, sorry, uh, favorite philosopher, he talked about freedom of speech and the importance of having productive disagreement, that being something that's important to do in a safe and protected way, because it's only through disagreement that we can uncover greater truths. And the pursuit of truth is really important to me. I think that's part of when I work with teams, when I work with companies as an investor, I'm, I'm not trying to get to yes, I'm not trying to get to no, I'm trying to get to truth. And so anyways, you've you got to hear some philosophy from me, but that's definitely a value I try to live by. I love that. We'll stick to that. Thank you, Howard. I really enjoyed this. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing your experience, your insights, and your advice. Anything that you'd like to close us out with, as well as how can people reach you if they want to continue the conversation or be helpful to you and to ChartUp? Well, appreciate that much. I really enjoyed being here. Thank you so much for having me. Howard at charterup.com is my email. If you reach out, I will do my best to respond. And then if you are interested in joining the company, please check out our careers page or email career at charterup.com. We are hiring on a bunch of open roles, engineering, product, lots of different places. And then if you're in need of a sprinter van, be on the lookout for the launch of our sprinters coming up soon. So thank you for having me. Really enjoyed being here. Such a pleasure and best wishes and prayers to, to everybody affected over the last eight days. Absolutely. Thank you so much. We'll be in touch soon. Thank you. Look forward to it. That's a wrap. Thanks so much for listening. My goal with this podcast is to share practical tips with founders and operators to help you on your startup journey. If you enjoyed this episode, please drop a five-star review in Apple or Spotify. It helps others like you discover the pod. And as always, I love to hear from you. So email me at hello at pmfpod.com or reach out on LinkedIn or Twitter. If you want to learn more about what growth can do for your startup, check out growth.co. That's grwth.co. As always, wishing you rocket ship success in your startup journey.